Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Some like it hot, and that would include the regulators. The acting comptroller of currency has been very public about the need to monitor unseen risks and unintended consequences that can disrupt the financial system. Kia Haslett, managing editor at Bank Director, and Alex Johnson, creator of FinTech Takes, and I break it down while eating some hot wings. This episode is hotter than the Trinidad scorpion sauce that almost made me cry. Kia, let's kick this off with you since you started. First, what hot sauce? We're going to have the hot takes. What hot sauce? And what are you dining in the Bank Director conference room? Like, are they going to hate you? I hope there's no fish. Um, yeah, I did not get fish for today's hot sauce. I have Crybaby Craig's from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and it's habanero and garlic. And um, I'm going to start off today's podcast with my first hot take, which is that this is not the hottest hot sauce. And I was actually really worried um, about how hot you, you were going to send me. So I overcompensated. I am eating smoky dry rub wings from a local barbecue place. And then... Um, I, again, I was just worried about like the overwhelming hotness. And so I got beer battered onion rings, French fries. I forgot I was ordering onion rings. And then I got macaroni and cheese. And I actually, if I need to, I have my protein shake because it has a little bit of milk and I didn't want to be a baby drinking you, you milk in a podcast. The addition of the macaroni and cheese is like a pro hot wing move. Thank you. To just be like, because the milk just is unsettling normally. Right, but to go to the mac and cheese. Well, yeah, I mean, let's kick this. Milk during a podcast. Let, let's kick this off because here's maybe the least spicy take: is you read all of the speeches and letters that any regulator puts out, and you do brilliant breakdowns of it. Something I appreciate because I don't enjoy reading what regulators put out in their speeches and reading the footnotes. So, why don't we start with what the acting comptroller put out last week, uh, talking about? these bank fintech partnerships and BAS in general? Yeah, Acting Comptroller um, Sue has been talking about trust in banking, specifically at the intersection of um, financial technology and bank partnerships for a year now. Um, and I think he's kind of building a thesis that where he lays out his his arguments, um, he lays out basically where he's coming from and the role that the his experience of the 2008 financial crisis played. Um, but I was reading the speech he gave to the um, TCHBPI annual conference uh, last week, and um, I don't always preface these. I, I was just eating lunch, um, opening a, a PDF, and I noticed um, that he said that as part of his um, analysis, he's scoping out how many banks actually do this. Um, and I saw this figure that his team had identified 10 OCC regulated banks with banking as a service partnerships with nearly 50 fintechs. Then they took that analysis a step further um, and used public uh, information to identify similar arrangements at banks that are regulated by the Federal Reserve and FDIC, which I suspect is means that these are state chartered banks. Um, and, and found similar numbers. And then they did an asset breakdown and 
as you can predict, many of these banks are below $10 billion in assets, but a fifth were below $1 billion in assets, which I thought was pretty interesting. I tweet that out. Um, it gets unbelievable traction. Um, and I, you know, I just think that, and it get and it got traction from the fintech industry, maybe not so much for my bank followers on Twitter. And I was just kind of surprised by um, other people's interest in this stat as well and what it might mean for them. I actually had a conversation not that long ago with two different institutions, one saying they had over 600 Baz banks and one, and this blew me away, over a thousand. Which just brings us back from an industry. That is so many. Right? Like, that is so many. And that also says, where are all of these fintechs, right? Like, I don't know that, you know, when you tally up all the numbers they said, and there's some duplication, where are they all going? But, you know, I think it speaks to, and back to that Finastra survey that 85% of banks say they're getting into banking as a service within the next 18 months, which is a surprisingly large number of banks and a surprisingly short time frame. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I. <laughs> it's funny because the pace of innovation, sometimes it just seems like slow, so slow, and then super fast. And I think we're kind of in that rapidly increasing tech- innovation and adaptation uh, for banks. And I think it's the existence of probably the middleware software providers that are able to make this a real plug and play and have really made it like simple to sign up. But, um, you know, obviously the rest of Sue's speech is that like, He doesn't love, he doesn't seem to love, or he seems to be really, really skeptical of this behavior. And I think he, I think he thinks banks are not being as critical about the risk management in part because there's almost like an outsource mentality. Um, I don't know if you guys agree on that. that. Alex, what the hot sauce do you have? Because you have some strong opinions here is, you know, let's talk about the different structures here for a second. Go. Yeah. So um, this is uh, Dave's gourmet hot sauce. It's creamy garlic, red pepper. It's really good. It's not it's not burning my mouth off, but it's like really tasty. So loving this. So one. you're gonna be drinking it from the bottle, is what you're saying. He's doing shots of it. You didn't even bring me. <laughs> I, I have I have popcorn that I'm dipping it in, which is a new experience because I didn't have time to run out and get food. So I have microwave popcorn dipping it in, and it's it's very good. I like this one. I well, popcorn dipped in hot sauce actually sounds fantastic. Kind of a game changer, honestly. <laughs> this is the first time I'm doing it, but it's it's pretty awesome. I'm, well, I'm enjoying this. Let's get to structures and you know briefly because I think most people who listen to this podcast know there's two models. There are those who go direct, right, yep. and say, "Hey, we're going to manage everything in between." And then there's the rise of the units, lithics, treasury prime, synapse. Um, who am I missing? Um, um, Sinkera, modern like Peter's mm-hmm. company. Oh yeah, Sinkera. Uh, right. So these, and they do different things, right? I think it's important to tease out. Some say, no, 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 we're just the transaction facilitator, right? A shadow core. And yep. we'll get into that when we talk business model, why you need a shadow core and the FBO structure, the vagaries there. And then there are others who say, hey, no, we'll actually, to Kia's point, do the outsourcing. We will be like a lot of the... Um, compliance work, the risk man- the management to get them onboarded, as well as the ongoing work that needs to be done. But I want to turn that now to you and say, if, if that's the model, you know, where do you, are we getting in trouble with this outsource mentality? Yeah, I think we are. And I think it goes back to what Kia was saying about the sort of explosion in number of companies that are participating in this space, right? So like when it starts, it's 
a few banks like Cross River and Web Bank and Celtic and one or two others. And they're doing this directly working with fintech companies. They do all of the onboarding. They do all of the technical integration. And obviously, they manage all of the compliance themselves. But when you start bringing in these platforms to participate in this market, the premise of the platforms is we can help sort of both increase and balance out supply and demand in the banking as a service space, right? So we can bring more fintechs in, make it easier for them to find a bank partner and to get started. And on the banking side, we can take all of those community banks uh, under 10 billion that can offer uh, Durban exempt interchange, and we can make Bass a product line for them that they can just sign up for, and we can make it really easy. And to your point, Within the BAS platforms, there were sort of two different philosophies, right? One is um, what I always thought of as like the the hinge dating app philosophy, right? Which is um, it's like the the dating app that's designed to be deleted. And so the pr- the principle is like we want to match you up with this partner that you're going to have a direct relationship with for a long time, and that's people like Treasury Prime and Sinkterra, and they want to make the initial connection easier. And they want to help match you up with the right partner, but like they don't want to stand in the way of the partnership you have with the bank, right? So the fintech and bank get to know each other. They work directly with each other. They take on most of the compliance work. And inherent to the model is that at some point, a lot of companies on those platforms will sort of graduate off of them and they'll have to go back and refill the well with new companies that are coming in. That is very different than the BAS platform model sort of embodied by the units or bonds of the world where they say, no, you know, we want to create a platform where we're connecting these two sides of the market, but you never have to meet each other. You never have to interact with each other at all, really. We're going to be the program management layer in the middle that facilitates that, right? And for certain types of uh, financial services, like embedded finance, where it's a non-finance brand that needs a bank charter to do what they want to do, they don't want to deal with the bank. They don't know how to like, you know, integrate with the bank or do compliance. And so the principle is that those more sort of uh, de-integrated platforms, and I use that word specifically because that came up in um, the acting comptroller's remarks. That is how he thinks about it. Right, right. So that like de-integrated approach, that's very, very different because the bank or uh, the bank and then the fintech or embedded finance brand, whoever it is, there's no direct connection there, right? And so from the bank's perspective, makes their life much easier in the short term because we don't have to worry about onboarding these guys. They'll do a lot of the due diligence. But what we have seen from the OCC and other regulators is them saying essentially, that's not gonna work, right? And if if a bank that's participating in BAS and going through one of these platforms, if they're sitting down with their examiner and saying, yeah, we do this, but like, if you have any questions, you should really go talk to this BAS platform. No, that's like not an acceptable answer. It's their accounts. It's their charter. They need to be responsible for it and know all the answers to the questions that those regulators have. And the sense I get, just looking at some of the public stuff that's happened, including some agreements between the OCC and some banks that are starting to come out, is that that mentality of we have questions and you're not giving us good answers is just not going to fly anymore. Well, I mean, to put a point on that, I had a conversation with another bank that is one that falls into Kia's over 50. And we were talking about monitoring and we started with transaction monitoring, you know, just in general, like all the monitoring you need to do. And they said, oh, no, 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 we don't have to do that because the platform we use does that. I'm like, 
I am very certain that any regulator who comes in and says you don't have a monitoring process and the, the response, this is the part that makes me worried as an industry. The response was they've indemnified us against that. And to your point about, yeah, those listening, not watching Alex's head's about to explode as he's <laughs> shaking it back and forth, right? Like they're indemnified doesn't help when consumers get hurt, especially. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think it just feels like, um, you know, I, I, from the regulatory perspective, I kind of wonder, and I have great empathy for the fact that regulators maybe for the last two years have been preoccupied with financial crisis um, or the pandemic response, PPP, and virtual exams. And I'm wondering now if going back to these on-site exams, having more conversations about business lines, um, and then asking about the risk management or the third party, you know, like the uh, monitoring are producing these sort of um, like questions that I would probably find to be unacceptable for a regulator, whether I whether or not I think the OCC has like like a punitive or an overly skeptical view. That's just not something I would really think a regulator would be accept- an acceptable answer. And to going back to Sue's speech. I wonder if these $1 billion banks that are getting into Bass have really invested in the complexity um, around how complicated some of these relationships are. When I wrote about, you know, the Bancorp and, you know, one of the OG um, banking as a service banks that they were under an FDA, they're a state chartered bank, but they were under a consent order for six years. This was a, this was a huge, huge investment in getting out of this regulatory order and investing in the systems that they needed to get out of the order. They had a BSA board level committee. They had kind of like, they had to, to, it was managed at that level, and the board was responsible for overseeing um, these KYC risk management programs, or even just making sure the money moves, and that the fintech p- partners that they're working with understand the nature of those relationships. Well, I mean, the ancient history here, Perk Street, back in two thousand eight, we were the first bank that was being onboarded. We didn't call it Baz then, but the reason we were structuring it that way was because we were a high rewards debit card, and they wanted the deposits to fund their lending business, we had to figure out a way to structure it that they would actually pay us for the deposits as opposed to we paid them. You remember they owned that big, uh, still own a big prepaid business, right? So they're used to this model of a program manager. We're just trying to solve for something else where they could actually use the deposits. And I can tell you, in those days, we were just figuring it out at every turn. And our regulators do nothing. And attribution to Kia, because she's the one who'd given this model to me when we were riffing on this. But right, so there, there were the pioneers who went out, began to explore and you know, ended up with dysentery on the side of the trail. And then the next wave, um, and we talked Cross River, MVB, Lincoln Savings Bank, some of those that Kia Coastal feels like. Coastal, this, right? You know, the they looked at it and they said, there's a good business here, but the problem is you didn't industrialize it. If you're going to do this at scale and we don't want to end up in the penalty box or on the side of the trail, we're going to go build programs against this and a whole bunch of technology to manage it so we can scale it up. And then the third way being where I think we'd all agree now is a lot of other banks have looked at and said, hey, bank, traditional banking has gotten exceedingly hard and getting harder with you know rates go up, so cost of funds go up, but there's still so much money. So our ability to you know raise our rates on the loans has not gone up. So NIM's under pressure. Hey, I can make a lot of money going and doing this. And the thing we didn't talk about, Kia, that I wanted to build on, I think 
one of the reasons that we're seeing banks jump into it without having to build the systems, if you look at what happened, you know, kind of two twin forces uh, starting in 2016. One is the CFPB was effectively neutered. And so a lot of things where you saw, you know, because of this desire to see deregulation, you got away with a lot of things that I think, you know, certainly under Sue, you would not get away with today, right? But the other one, and this is inadvertent, and it's one of those unintended consequences, I think, you know, the past chairman of the FDIC, McWilliams, and she was doing this rightfully so, is we need to modernize the agency and our approach to innovation. The, the challenge was when you trickle that down to the front lines, I think the result was a lot of the front lines said, well, we haven't updated the regulations. And I don't know how to do kind of better reinterpretation. So I'm just not going to do anything. And so those two things resulted in for a long time a lot of things that otherwise might have gotten clamped down or tidied up. What we're seeing now is a Newtonian equal and opposite reaction. It's just happening in a very short time frame on what the OCC is looking to, to do. Beat that argument up. That narrative and that timeline makes a lot of sense. And um, one of the themes that Sue talks about and actually appears in the OCC's uh, five-year strategic plan is sort of a re-education or a rethinking of how examiners have to think about innovation because he does talk about, excuse me, um, the tension between wanting to, he knows banks cannot stay where they are. They have to innovate. There is a risk associated with not evolving, but there is also a risk in that comes from innovation that is done thoughtlessly or is done without regards to fully understanding the full picture. And, you know, his, his 2008 experience in the financial crisis, you know, he was at the Treasury Department um, and saw how AIG's risk was completely missed because there was no central holding company regulator. He was at the SEC when they created basically like a novel form of regulation for the broker dealers before making them <laughs> go into um, a more formal regulatory system. He has these direct experiences with making stuff up really quickly in order to have a light hand of regulation and has seen actually, you know, and I I think we, sometimes Alex was actually asking about what lessons fintech should learn. The ways that like new innovative products create risk. Um, and I think he keeps that very, very close in his mind. So he's trying to think about from the examiner side, how can we understand the opportunity of these innovations while also being like very conscientious and sensitive to the risk? Like I was thinking about, you know, has any bank actually failed because of BSA, right? I am as a traditional bank reporter, I'm really used to this idea of bank runs. I'm used to the idea of bad loans. I'm used to, you know, prompt corrective actions and things like that. And I could only come up with two banks and one of them was not even in the United States. Um, but I, and so I, I think like the worst case scenario maybe doesn't always come true, but um, I think most community banks don't want to finance criminal activity. Um, and they don't want their, they don't want people to access their systems that they don't want to use. And, but there's, so there seems to be like with these middleware 
some of these platforms, there's just not a lot of ownership of the relationship or of the deposit or of the customer. And I, and there's just a really big focus on the money, which is so interesting to me because, um, I do think with like banking as a service, if you, if it's done right, it's actually kind of hard to make a lot of money unless you have a ton of scale and you're really devoting your bank to be a lot of technology, uh, right? Like you, you've had to automate all of this. Yeah. It's, and you have to devote a lot of risk personnel. Like I was just, when I wrote my banking as a service story, the amount of compliance and risk personnel they had to hire to handle so many of these new accounts was kind of like, it really takes over your bank. And so if you're not really like, you know, something the bank corp told me is like a lot of these banks that are entering now in this third wave of banking as a service, they don't want to be banking as a service banks. And so they're probably going to struggle to allocate resources internally. Um, they might struggle with comp- like thoughtful compliance that you know took the bank corp six years to really invest in because they're just not fully they're not that kind of a bank. Yeah, well, but this raises. I want to tie that back to something you said that it was a brilliant insight as well. In the middle of this, is they want to be more innovative. I think if you just slap on, oh, we're going to go do banking as a service, it hasn't solved your innovation problem. Right, you, like you've added a technology component, and you know maybe a sexier front end, but you haven't solved innovation. Yeah, I think there's a lot of banks that aren't maybe curious. So I, you know, I think Coastal really wants to pair its banking as a service um, along with innovation, right? Like they're thinking about that kind of whole like what will their fintech partner offer these new customers? How can Coastal learn from that and kind of build off of that? There are a lot of banks that are like, I am completely fine being a deposit account and a debit card to this customer. Um, but there, <laughs> I don't really know what the learning is and understanding like... Sometimes I like I, I wrote about this on Twitter yesterday. Like, why do these fintechs want these unsophisticated... You know where I was, service was going like, with this. I have oh. quite, I would like... I would feel like a little bit of like a lamb and a lion situation. Like it just seems like a complete, like it's not, it might not be equal minds, right? I I don't know. So that was just some, that was something where my brain went yesterday was why, why, why these fintech partnerships with these particular banks and not, you know, not the OGs, not our first wave, not our second wave, right? Why our third wave choices? Well, I think one thing that needs to be sort of said plainly as a part of all of this is. When you look at like where different fintech partners go in terms of the vast landscape, the best ones, meaning the ones with mature, experienced, you know, repeat founders that know the ins and outs of all of this, that have really stable uh, funding and a roadmap to to raising money, and that you know are just going to be able to attract the right people to work with them from day one. Those fintech companies all work with Bass. Uh, banks directly, usually those wave one and wave two ones, right? So those ones all go to those big established bass providers. Because to your point, like they want that level of support and they want that direct experience and they want the unit economics of working directly with the bank, not going through a bass platform. And what that does, if you look at the sort of space overall, is we have sort of a self selection problem, which is that all of the fintech companies that can't get the time of day from those direct from coastal that goes to look at and say yeah exactly like the, one that, the one that they're just like i won't even return your email or it's like a quick no whatever those ones get passed between all of the og bass banks and they end up with the bass platforms right and so if you were to sort of analyze the sort of composition of all of these different bass players portfolios of fintech companies 
the direct, really established vast banks have the best fintech companies. That's not to say that those are all going to be successful or that they're all going to wind up being really profitable, but they're the best bets, right? Almost from like a VC yeah. portfolio perspective. The vast platforms end up with more of a mixed bag because they get a lot of the ones that aren't ones that the other ones want to deal with. And the reason they might not want to deal with them have everything to do with profitability, ability to raise funds, how experienced and easy they will be to work with. But it also has to do, uh, Kia, going back to your point with like high risk, right? Like there's a bunch of high risk fintech ideas that border into areas that have high reputational risk or have a lot greater compliance burden. And those fintech companies have to go somewhere too. And so I think a lot of those are ending up with those vast platforms. And as a consequence, they're ending up with the less sophisticated bass banks that also don't have the compliance infrastructure in place to handle it. So it's kind of, it's ironic in a way because the bass banks that are experienced at doing this, they would be the ones that could actually de-risk and handle some of those higher risk fintech companies, but they don't want them. Yeah, it's because it's a lot of work. Yeah, they're they're kind of having the infrastructure and then being like, it's still too much work. Yeah, (laughs) like we would really prefer not to to do that. You know, well, it's an inefficient market, is what you're saying, Alex. Right? Like in a in an efficient market, those you know bad players wouldn't be able to go find a bank to back them. That so in essence, the middleware, which is supposed to make a more efficient market, it is actually making an inefficient market that doesn't kill things that shouldn't get off the ground. Well, I think I think there's just a like. I, I I don't want to say that like no one understands banking and I'm the only one who understands banking. But like, I think actually there's maybe some sort of like to your point about the last five years of, the, of regulatory orientation, there is maybe um, a lower appreciation of how seriously everyone needs to take the risk and yeah. regulators maybe forgot it or like de-emphasized it for a couple of years in favor of innovation. But that, that just can't happen. Like, Alex, when you were talking about the selection issue, I think about that a lot when it comes for banking, um, for credit, right? For credit risk. Like there are some banks that get all of the good credit and maybe they don't make as much money on individual loans, but they've got these really good customers. And leading up into the financial crisis, um, I talk about this a lot with like de novos and why de novos failed was that the need for growth led to a race to the bottom for credit and coupled with other issues like liquidity and um, capital just blew up some banks. And so I don't know, you know, again, the risk of banking as a service is really different than the risk of credit, but I don't think they're completely there. There's not zero overlap. They they really do care. It's a good analogy. Go. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Yeah, I mean, that's that's. I think that's a perfect analogy, actually, because it's like, again, it's self-selection. The best customers will go to the places where they can get the best service and response. And if those providers are getting the best customers, they have no incentive to work with the less good customers, right? And so like that same dynamic and like potential race to the bottom applies here. And I think going back here to what you were saying about the OCC's sort of overall view of this, right? Like, it seems like the acting comptroller, and I love how you sort of grounded in his personal experiences and what he witnessed, because that comes out in all of his remarks where he it's, talks about it. It's that. in all of his speeches, actually. He always uses it as an analogy, right? And it's funny because like, he'll be talking to a crypto audience and he uses that analogy. He'll be talking to a more fintech banking as a service audience and he'll use that as an analogy. Like it's always the same analogy applied to different areas within financial services. And like, if you abstract away the specifics about crypto or about banking as a service, it seems like the thing that he's really worried about from a risk perspective is the just inherent risk of more complex systems, right? So he talks a lot about like, 
in banking and finance, what does the supply chain look like? Yep. And yep. in you know the leading up to the 2008 financial crisis, a, a, a sort of broad way of looking at it is the supply chain just got infinitely more complex, and there's all this risk hiding in there. And so, I going back to your point about like banking as a service versus um, sort of other other examples of this. I actually agree with you. Like, I don't think the risk of like contagion that blows up a lot of these banks is necessarily super high with Bass because it does seem like BSA and anti-money laundering is kind of one of the primary concerns that's actually coming out so far. And that's probably not going to like destroy a bunch of banks from a liquidity balance sheet perspective. But it does seem like the acting comptroller, anytime he sees complexity and a complex supply chain, he almost kind of freaks out and goes like, no, we got to, we got to put the brakes on this. He actually mentioned supply chains in a recent speech. He sees a big uh, parallel between that as well. And then the other thing too, and like, I think this is a very natural regulatory position. And it's the question I asked is like, like, (laughs) how are we trying to avoid risk? Like, how are we, and, and how are we being like, in like, how are we not seeing risk? How are we becoming complacent to risk? Like he cited in um, the, the Credit Suisse report about Archelos, um, how they just became, they knew all of these things about their customer um, that that should have been interpreted correctly as, as a risky customer. And they just ignored it because for the time being, it was a profitable relationship. And they yeah. really, really did not think about how much these losses could impact the bank. And they also didn't have a sense of how many counterparties um, they were going to be exposed to. And that's just a theme in, in finance, right? Mm-hmm. And so I wonder like you know, Sue's really focused on counterparty risk and liquidity risk and uh, derivative type risk. And I think there are elements of that in the banking as a service because it's so fractional. It's so, it's so indirect. Yeah, no, absolutely. Go for it, Alex. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, I think the, the other thing to your point there is that, and this kind of ties into like account structure and all of those things. But I think a lot of times, the way banking as a service is presented at a high level, and maybe even the way that like fintechs and banks talk to regulators about it is, oh, well, like we have a bank partner, they're FDIC insured, so everyone's money is safe. It's all good. But like the reality is the more layers you put between the consumer and their bank account, where their money actually sits, the more layers of complexity you're adding in that make it really hard to untangle when there's a problem, right? And so, you know, a lot of times I think we sort of look at these things and we go, oh, well, there's never been any like major bank failures uh, that have related to banking as a service. And it's like, maybe that's just because we haven't had any yet. You know what I mean? Like we've been operating in a low interest rate environment. FinTech is, um, you know, been really well funded. There's been all this sort of extra money sitting in everyone's pockets. The risk level has been very, very low. And so maybe we just haven't stress tested this model enough But to that point, I think there's absolutely a broader concern that we have to look at, which is, you know, and some people have been starting to ask this question. I think it's the exact right question. Like, what happens when a neobank fails? I was going to just take us there, Alex, because I've had this independently with both of you. And I I think all three of us have been on some of those new Twitter threads because in a world where you can always go raise more money because it's the race for growth at all costs. And then you get into a world where unit economics matter and actual unit economics leading to can you ever be a profitable business? You know, suddenly those brakes just to get pumped, they went in full on skid, you know, related to that. And so we've seen common bond. And now, you know, I think based on the email you received, Kinley, you know, yeah. is now going to be 
uh, exiting. So the question becomes, what happens when a startup fails, when a neobank fails? Yeah, well, I mean, I I first noticed this with um, Beam Financial. Do you remember them a couple of years ago? And it's like a savings app that was designed to sort of get you better uh, better yield on your deposits, on your savings. And they used sort of a sweep functionality across multiple banks. And there were um, FBO accounts and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, they failed because they didn't run a very good business, as as tends to happen. And what was really interesting was reading all of the complaints about like, I can't get my money back out, right? Like I know my money is sitting in an account somewhere. It is FDIC insured. It's sitting somewhere. But like, you know, as a customer of Beam, I can't call Beam because they're not answering the phone because they've disappeared or they're buried under customer service problems or whatever. And they've told me my money is sitting in some account, but I might not know which account that is or at what bank. And then if I call that bank, let's say I know, hey, it's sitting at, you know, Chase or it's sitting at Wells Fargo or it's sitting at Coastal or wherever, I can't call them up as a consumer and go, hey, I'm Alex Johnson. I want to get my money up because to them, I'm not the customer Beam Financial is, right? And so there's all of these sort of layers that stand. The layers, yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's hard to unpack when something goes wrong. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet. But we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. I want to hit on a structure that I realize sometimes is not well understood. One of the challenges we had at Perk Street in making our unit economics work and how we ran this with Bancorp is there was a bank account at Bancorp for every one of our customers, right? Yep. So there, there was an Alex Johnson account. There was a Kia Haslett account. And so the issue is, because of the way the cores work, that was very expensive for us, right? So these middleware companies or what the second wave went out and built themselves to solve that. And they said, hey, what we need is if we put it in an FBO or a four beneficial ownership account, it's one account. But there is like an Excel spreadsheet sitting on top of it that, you know, every day. Gets oh, yeah, balanced. there's a big ledger. Yeah. Yes, there there is a big ledger that says this one account that has all of these millions of dollars in it, you know. $2,470.32 is Alex's and, you know, 5,900 is Kia's and Jason has a balance of about 150. Um, 
right? Where you can dis you could go disaggregate it, but then now the question becomes: so it's it's all insured, but only one account is insured, which is something I think a lot of people miss. It's not like it, if I have one account holding all of these that the FDIC benevolently looks and goes, oh, because you have that secondary ledger, I'm going to FDIC insure each individual as if it's an individual account. Yep. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, so we're talking about banking as a service, but uh, I, and I think we're drawing a distinction between banks that offer, offer crypto services, but that could, is arguably a different type of banking as a service. And we saw that, right, with, um, uh, was it Voyager, um, their bankruptcy. And like, I, (laughs) as someone who, again, covers banking, FDIC insurance, there is always like a long running debate of does it matter? Who does it matter to? And when does it matter? Um, And that many of these fintechs don't really think bank, like insurance matters that much, but they still understand the marketing appeal of it. And the fact that we, in the year of our Lord, 2022, had a real question (laughs) about whether (laughs) deposits were insured under what circumstances and the FDIC in August had to come out with a consumer bulletin and explain what, what isn't, isn't insured. And then these questions, right. Again, with the middleware, the bank has a service middleware is how do these let maybe potentially less sophisticated, less involved banks that don't really want to make banking as a service, their dominant business line. How, how are they accounting for potentially like customer accounts versus if they have, you know, any financial relationship with the FinTech itself? I don't know where, you know, these fintechs keep their primary bank accounts, but just making sure that operating revenues are not commingling with customer accounts. And then, you know, Alex, I think you asked the question about bank failures and how it is. And it's actually like, you know, when if you were in 2010 watching hundreds of banks fail every Friday, um, yeah. it's actually a pretty smooth handoff. I had friends who had, you know, were customers of a failed bank and literally like they could still use their debit card. They got a new checkbook in the mail. They like, there was, so it was like the, no interruption point, right? of services because the FDIC was really facilitating and being directly involved in that. And that was a huge benefit, huge financial stability, consumer trust stayed, you know, was, was preserved. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great example, right? Because like really what we're talking about is not like technically is an account FDIC insured because we'll set Voyager and crypto aside because they're crazy. But like in FinTech, everything is FDIC insured somewhere at some point to some level. The question is when something happens, what are the processes in place to unwind the thing that broke and then put it in a safe place and make sure that consumers access to money, which is obviously critical to our day-to-day survival, isn't even paused for a minute if we can help it, right? And like to your point, the FDIC knows exactly how to do this when it relates to one bank working with another bank. So a bank goes out of business, they unwind that one, they transfer over the assets, there's no interruption in service. Like it's a very smooth, well-practiced, well-rehearsed process. They know exactly what it looks like. And to the consumer, nothing bad really happens. When you add all this extra complexity in with FinTech, the challenge is, those processes need to be thought through, right? What is the process to unwind this if it doesn't work? How does ownership get passed over from one entity to another? What are the contractual agreements? Who gets taken care of first if there's bankruptcy? Like all of those contractual process-oriented questions are things that banks and the FDIC have spent a ton of time on for decades. FinTech has spent five minutes thinking about it, right? Sadly. And, And the problem is that like, that's not sexy stuff, right? Like it's not tech, it's not marketing, it's not customer acquisition. So you talk to like a fintech founder and you're like, hey, 
you really need to spend some time on this. And they're like, eh, you know, like, I don't want to think about that. And you kind of can't blame them, right? Because no one wants to think about their business going out of business, right? FinTech people are very optimistic by nature. That's why they do what they do. And so they're like, we'll never go out of business. This is going to be great. But like, contingency planning is such a core part of banking. And in fintech, that's just not the same attitude. So I actually, to your point, um, came across a speech Sue gave to the American Fintech Council in November, 2021. And he talks that, he calls it synthetic banking, like, right? So he is not about this, like, he categorizes all of this stuff as like sort of fake banking, I guess. Um, And he says that... um, Synthetic banking and fintechs need to level up. Um, and they really kind of need to step up and make, you know, handling people's money a high trust endeavor. Um, and that there needs to be like another leveling up is to understand kind of the right. We haven't even talked about this, but the rights of like <laughs> what is a bank? What do banks do? Are some of these fintech banks? Um, that's a whole different theoretical question. But I, that comment led me to write down, do banks need, or do fintechs need to be stress testing themselves? Do banks need to be seeing fintech stress test themselves? Um, I know we talk, we've been talking, you know, again, I'm so sorry. I keep bringing Twitter into this conversation because we just have like a thousand different conversations, (laughs) but Vero. So Vero is a Neo bank with a bank charter. And there are questions about Vero's capital burn and their business model. Right. And like Vero kind of, you know, Vero has at least FDIC insurance. Um, so we kind of, we know that there's going to be, um, some sort of level of protection, but if we think about like Vero wasn't a bank, Vero was, you know, a bank corp bank before they moved over, like what kind of, um, stress testing, did that company need to be doing to kind of um, figure out it's both operational burn and then like it's wind down, it's contingency planning, the way that, you know, banks, many banks incorporate aspects of stress testing and some are regulatory required too. Well, and to build on that, one of the areas of complexity that we glossed over in this is each one of these banks has venture capital or these fintechs have venture capitalists behind it who have very different incentives. And I'd love to see a VC, like this would to me would show the savvy VC. Show me your wind down plan and what is the cash level we need to be at that I don't have to put write you another check to shut down. And I can tell you from personal experience, having shut down, you know, a, a FinTech challenger bank, there was no understanding and just as you have a bunch of unsophisticated banks getting into banking as a service, you have an equal number of like, you know, I, I was at Plaid for two years. I understand, you know, banking. No, you need to go talk to Kia to really go understand banking, right? You don't understand the complexity of how some of this stuff works. You might understand consumer products and, you know, you might understand helping the underserved. But there's another risk when you start to think about the investors that come behind it. You know, I can I can always tell this when you hear from an investor, you can tell they shouldn't be swimming in this pool when they're like, there's no way that we're going to give the names and addresses of all, all of our partners, you know, to the regulator to get a money transmission license. You're kind of like, That's well, actually, no, you probably should, right? Yeah, there's a like, reason The regulator want really it. wants to know who's involved, it, like by name. Oh man, I... This is a different story, but I wrote a story once about like whether someone should own a bank. And then I had to go into the FDIC and look up like 
what is because the FDIC actually mandates good character, right? So like you can't be convicted of a crime and oh, and have your name on a bank um, charter or be like a named executive officer, right? Like the F, like these are things regulators really care about. Also, Jason, I keep forgetting to tell you, I did blow my nose. I don't know if people like are going to watch this video, but I will give you credit for the sp- heat level. I did. I did have to blow my nose. It, it was a slow build. I yeah. have. Well, and I, by the way, like I think I sent you one of these two, Alex the Lola's fine hot sauce with the Trinidad scorpion. It's no joke. It it is no (laughs) joke, but it's also not front of the tongue. Like that stuff that I had out at DevCon, which just like was napalm in my mouth. So I've been (laughs) dipping chips in this stuff. And now I'm like, Oh, I very quietly have made an inferno of my mouth. (laughs) I know. know, Some mac and cheese. (laughs) Yeah. Can you send some over? Oh, um, right. So w- there's a reason they want to know. And it it makes me wonder, like, so if the slowdown and how we take complexity out of the system, you know, this is the hot sauce talking. Do we actually need to put the funders and the executives, the founders of some of these startups a little bit on the hook for what the wind down looks like? If you're going to go do these things, you know, in order to... To be a Baz Bank, do you actually need to go through and get a special certification? Say, hey, you know, to instead of not every bank. Can well, take I a think like if we're gonna take the parallel that loans um, and how, right? Like you can have banks can use like don't they use like good character? Don't they collateralize? Like there's when a bank extends capital to a customer, there are mechanisms by which they can seize, they can sue. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's kind of a problem we've solved for and the mechanism seems to work and there's like court proceedings that work, um, and contract law. And so maybe there needs to be just some better, (laughs) you know, negotiations and contracts here or more. I I mean, I don't know, like put some money up in an account. Like I don't, I'm not on that inside of this. I feel feel like you should have to submit to your bank and update it. You're very similar to stress testing. Yep. What is not only what is my plan to wind down, but relative to my cash position on almost a weekly basis, you know, given how much some of these burn, what it will take to execute my wind down plan, given the number of customer accounts I have on the books at any given time, you know, that are active that I'd need to, to wind down. Right. And I think banks need to be aware too, that their fintech customer might become their customer, right? Like it sounds when Perk Street... Um, wind it down. Maybe it was really annoying to have individual accounts, but it was um, a hot toss. I'm not going to lie. Like what ended up happening is, you know, we had squirreled away enough capital and actually shout out to all the former Perk Street members. We had staffers where we couldn't pay salaries who volunteered so oh that God. we could do an orderly wind down wow. and have customers get out. Cause I mean, keep in mind, you know, we were one of the first in this idea of I might be banking with something that's not a bank, but it smells like a bank. You know, the consumer was, yes, we were bank adjacent. So we're a synthetic bank, right? We had their direct deposit. They had, we had their full trust in all of their money. And as one of our investors suggested, it's like, why don't we just mail them a check? Well, because then they won't be able to pay their mortgage or buy groceries and do a whole bunch of other things. Like it takes X period of time to do an orderly wind down. Well, and I, I think the other thing that Kia brought up that's a, a good example of all of this is 
where where you see fintechs get stress tested for real is when they're going through the process of actually getting a bank charter, right? So Borrow went through that. SoFi went through that. Lending Club went through that. There's a few that have gone through that. That is when they go through their paces, that's, isn't that's, it? Like the first time they've ever been stress tested, right? And like, I, I, you hear stories or you sort of see examples of like, you know, fintechs that have gone through that where they're like, oh my God, like I had no idea what that process is like, but it's it's because from a safety and soundness perspective, they want to know on a recurring basis, how much money do you have? What's your business plan? How are you going to grow? How profitable are you? How profitable do you project that you will be? And it's just, I mean, fintech founders have to answer those questions when they're uh, dealing with their investors, but it's a very sort of softball way. It's like they send out an investor update. Oh, things are trending in the right direction. Things are good. They don't have to answer that question the way that regulators make them answer that question when it's stress test time. There's also and, not the accountability that regulators have the you know the enforcement actions, right? That's right. Um, and that they, you know when you're dealing with insured money, the regulators can kind of tell you you know what to do. Yeah, I think one thing that again, one reason why I keep going back to the bank corp is because that consent order said that they could take on new customers. Um, and for six years, right? So that's a big handicap on growth. Blue Ridge Bank um, is also looking at a similar situation where, yeah. it, but that is, you know, obviously less detrimental to the entire business model. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, going back to Jason's point with the, do investors need to be putting something up? There probably does need to be a little bit more of an accountability process, um, yeah. a little bit more stakeholderness that, that, um, and then banks also need to really understand this like really weird, you know, their regulatory oversight, their, um, their duties. Um, and then <laughs> how can they, how can they make their partners, um, their fintech partners share in that risk and share in that understanding? Because it is really special to be a bank. Um, and I don't think banks always really explain their special status to other, um, to, you know, to their partners, why, yeah, why it's I, so important to be a bank. And I think to your point, I mean, one of the concepts you're getting at is that because fintech has grown so fast and because fintech has been such a sort of driving force in the industry, everyone who works with fintech companies, VCs, bank partners, everyone, they're all very founder friendly, right? Like, I don't want to make this fintech company mad. I want to work with them. I want to invest money in them. And so to your point about accountability, accountability goes by the wayside, right? Like the more founder friendly you are, the less accountable you hold the the fintech companies that you're working with. And, you know, I, I, it's so funny sometimes when you see fintech companies sort of react to regulators and they're like, there's almost this sense of disbelief. Like, how could regulators act this way? You know, yeah, how like, how they, dare they? How dare yeah. they? And it's like, do they know actually, who I am? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. Like, do you have any idea who I am? And it, it speaks to sort of the level of pampering that many fintech founders get from everyone else in the ecosystem who's trying to be founder friendly and work with them. And regulators are the one group in the industry that's like, we're not founder friendly. We're not company friendly. Our job is to protect consumers and the stability of the system. You have to answer these questions and we're not going to let you off the hook. So I, I think that's goes back to my earlier point though, Alex, that we had a four-year period where they were being let off the hook because there was a vacuum. Right. If PUB wasn't doing it. And so the pampering continued. And unfortunately, they just got to school and realized, you know, little Mary just realized she's not, in fact, always the most brilliant and does not always get to the swing she wants. I don't want to totally derail this, but I just I had a thought that I wanted you guys to, to answer. Do you think 
we would have this problem today. We would have this speech. We'd have these concerns if the OCC had um, gone through with its novel bank charter. And, or would we have solved this problem if fintechs had access to insured deposits? Like, do you think the answer is that all of them should become banks? Like, I don't, you know, with the business model that they have. So those are two questions. Alex gets to go first. I got it. I mean, I, so I think, I think the OCC and other regulators would feel much better about the current situation if we had gone that way. Right. Um, like regulatory oversight per yeah, year. Yeah, they, they would just they would know what was happening and they would have their hands on it, right? Like one of the things that blew me away about uh the acting comptroller's uh, latest remarks where he touched on this was he defined bank fintech partnerships in a way that was very like circa 2014. It was like I'll 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 read you a a part of that um that comment because it just really kind of surprised me, right? It was like um By partnering, banks can gain speed to market and access to technological innovation at lower cost, while fintechs seek to benefit from banks' reputations for being trustworthy, longstanding customer bases, and access to cheaper capital and funding sources. That's not what BAS is. That's just not. like That that does not accurately describe how BAS works. That's not the nature of most bank fintech partnerships today. And so when they defined it that way in those comments, I was like, oh my God, like, how how out of the loop have you been about how this works, that that's the sort of default way you defined it? And I think if we had had that other path that fintech companies were going down instead of the one we went down, there might not be as many fintech companies. Fintech companies might have had some constraints that would have impacted their ability to innovate and grow. So it might have been bad for the fintech ecosystem. But I think that the regulators would have a much clearer understanding of how fintech works, whereas listening to some of these comments, I don't know that they're totally caught up on how everything works today. Yeah, well, let me build, because we end in a similar place, but get there very, by very different paths, Alex, which is, I think if they'd gone ahead with the special charter, it would have completely stymied in a lot of innovation because they would have raised the bar so high the ability to get over that bar, especially without you know a, a clear number of wins around, can you build a sustainable business out of that? Totally. You wouldn't see a lot of VCs go, yeah, I'm in for a hundred million to go prove out at your Series A, right? So we'll do a hundred on a ten million dollar pre. That sounds about good, right? In terms yeah, of yeah, level. just like not not a lot of appetite for that. Not a lot of appetite for that, and so you would have seen it. I mean, the traditional banking market would have loved it, um, but I think what we needed to do, and frankly, in retrospect, doing the hard work up front, like a lot of the Baz banks have done would it, it from a regulatory point of view and said okay let's stop this is fundamentally different we the regulators are partially to blame here which is by not updating regulation and giving guidance on this the system became complex to try and work within the existing bounds the complexity mm-hmm. is a result of regulation that was not applicable here that yeah. you had to do contortions to get around yeah i um i you know, from my perspective, I kind of think it, that if there was a novel bank charter for fintechs, it would have at least changed the selection problem. It doesn't get rid of the selection problem that Alex mentioned earlier, but it just brings it more into the regulators versus like what I think we have a, is a market-based selection problem. And people, 
and and the regulators um, would have just been a lot more involved in conversations around um, having oversight of fintechs and maybe well, they don't laying even, down some ground rules. They don't even know how many banks are doing this, right? Like that was that was the thing. Yeah, that's from, wild. Like, comment, <laughs> it just blew me away. Okay, like, so they could like probably change this with a line item in the call report. Like I'm not yes, saying the call report yes. needs to be any bigger, but okay. So the way. The way that fintech partnerships used to be tracked is probably through like broker deposit concentration. Fintech mm-hmm. deposits used to be broker deposits. Um, whether or not you were the direct um, recipient or whether you got them through like some sort of sweep type program thing, the middleware. But now that um, you know there was an update to the FDIC's definition of a broker deposit, where um, if you work directly with the fintech, it is not brokered. But if you are like a secondary or if you probably get your deposits through middleware, you are that is a broker deposit. And then like you could probably break out, you know, brokered CDs versus brokered yep. um type funds, other other type of brokered funds. Um, but yeah, that was my <laughs> I I was a little like um like what kind of public information would a regulator ch- like pull up to track? Um, these deposit relationships or these relationships, and I'm going to guess it's deposit growth, probably like inexplicable deposit growth. Right. Um, like, how, are they, but, how are they doing this otherwise? Yeah, so they, yeah. It, like a, it's like a black hole, right? Like you can't see the black hole, but you can see the absence of it. Yeah, like, that's you can see around like, it. That, that must be that yeah. must be what's happening there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right, and it's to your point, and I, Jason, I agree with you about the impact on innovation, but like if there was more of a framework or a way to navigate around this that made it less complex, it would have been easier for the OCC to answer the question, just how many banks do we oversee do this? It wouldn't have sounded like the acting controller was surprised to learn that most banks that do this are under $10 billion. Like, I thought we knew that. Obviously. I thought that was common knowledge. <laughs> yeah, but be, like, apparently, you, apparently not. How many tri- you know pitch decks should you have seen that you say, you only make money on interchange. Right. 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 That exactly. alone would have told you. Yeah. So, I mean, like, so there, there were just, there were elements to it where I felt like going to the point we've been making, they just didn't have their hands anywhere close to the wheel. And they were just starting to kind of figure out how to grab onto it. And if we had charted a slightly different course five years ago, we probably would be in a better position now. So I think the industry overall might be in for a bit of pain as not just the OCC, but lots of different regulators figure out how they want to approach this topic. Well, I wonder if we don't need to look, at, I like Kia pulling different models in, but let's look at the model of if you wanted to go public on the London Stock Exchange. And so like this was all the rage uh, in the early 2000s after the first internet bubble, that if you couldn't go get gross stage capital and you know the markets had tanked, there wasn't a lot of M&A, the London Stock Exchange created this really novel approach to going public where you actually, as the company going public, had to hire an investment bank that acted as your proxy regulator. In some sense, the issuing bank here, right? Or the bank behind you is your proxy regulator. Oh, that's but that, pro- that proxy regulator was regulated in a different fashion than just any other investment bank out there who's you know doing transactions and things like that. There were specific criteria. And by the way, they got dinged when their programs, right? Like they would, you know, do testing and would ask them, you know, around processes and for reports on you know things like complaints and what does financial crime look like, that they had to prove that they could subregulate in a well, you know, oiled fashion. 
Well, it's like anytime that you you present an opportunity for players in the ecosystem to just start printing money, you have to layer on more regulation to make sure they do it safely, right? Like that's just, I think, a very sort of good rule of thumb. And in the case of Bass, like I think something that regulators maybe didn't fully grasp when it first started happening is, holy cow, is this a profitable way to grow, right? I mean, like- Okay, that like, I want to push back on that because I will just say the but OG, like the we're talking about first wave banks and service banks. Like they proved out this model- is profitable, but they also, I thought, and I think everyone understood the model is hard. hard. Um, yes. and to me, like, I, I don't know what, like, I, I don't really know why it fully exploded and grew the way it did because it really felt like, you know, the path word, the meta, the great or path word, bank green dot, all of them like had showed that this was very profitable. It was just really hard and no banks wanted to do it. And I think like, you know, maybe banking as a service exploded with technology or maybe just more fintechs wanting to do it. But we knew this made a lot of money. We just also knew it was a lot of work. But you also became your business model. Right. Like you, back to an earlier point, you have to invest a lot to do it. But in Mm -hmm. the short term, right, if you're not worrying about the unintended consequences, what happens in a downturn, just back to your lending analogy, it's easy to make a lot of money when everything's going up into the right and doing it. And it's only when things are not going up into the right and you haven't made the investments up front that you're like, oh, this is actually not a profitable business. In yeah, fact, it's yeah, so unprofitable. The thing, right, is that it can generate revenue for anyone regardless of how sophisticated they are in their approach to it. The problem is getting paid back or having it be a sustainable business. Same thing with lending. So I think you're right. Like, you know, you look at someone like, I, I was always blown away by WebBank during the P2P yeah. boom, right? Where yeah. it's like tiny little bank in Utah, they only had like 40 employees or something. And they were like processing billions of dollars. Well, WebBank was Lending Club's bank, right? Back in the day. And they yeah. had built that infrastructure and they figured out the model to get paid a little bit on all these loans. Right. And how to, and, and like, to their credit, whether or not we like how they manage the... um not being the the named lender or whatever, right, like right. they are, they are very thoughtfully looking at existing regulation mm-hmm. and try doing their best to comply with it because they have a really vested interest in because this is their entire business model. Their yeah, it's their entire business model. I mean, like I think maybe a takeaway that I've had, uh, Kia, listening to your comments is that like. Bass is not for tourists. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's, I think a big thing for me. It's now your identity. Yeah. Yeah. Like, cause your point, like if you go all in on Bass and you really staff up compliance and you shift your business to focus on it, you can do it well and you can make money. And there's a role for this to be played in the ecosystem, either directly or through Bass platforms. But if you don't, and you're just like, oh yeah, I think we'll add Bass as something we want to do because we want to make more money, but we don't really want to do any of the work associated with that that's going to be bad for you. That's going to potentially be bad for the customers working with that fintech company. And it's going to be bad for the ecosystem. Well, and the other thing too, and I think about this a lot, uh, I call the Bass banks the biggest small banks, because if you are really <laughs> into Bass and you are really becoming, you become dependent on that revenue line, you'll probably never grow over $10 billion in assets. And you will need to fundamentally shift your M&A strategy. You will ha- probably have to shift how you lend, right? You can never accidentally, you don't want to sneeze and grow over $10 billion. Um, so, you know, I, even outside of risk, if you want to do BAS, you actually need to kind of revisit that three to five year plan and just be like, how big is this going to become for us? How important it is. And when we decide we want to be over 10 billion and we're not attractive to fintech partners anymore, um, you know, what are we going to do to make up that, that technology and strategy or whatever and revenue? Well, I think this is a great way to wrap. This has been a hot conversation. 
No one is sweating. No one is vomited. So I think we can call it a tremendous success. Thanks both of I you. I ate a lot of my wings. It was yes. very, very well, good I like that sauce. you actually show up for it because the people who are like, oh, you were serious about the wings. Right. That's why I, I kept texting my friends. Hot. I was like, God, I'm doing this podcast and he's going to send me hot sauce. And now I have to go buy wings. Like it's just the, the tweet has taken a very weird turn and it, and the turn involved wings. So there you go. Thank you guys. I think we're going to have to do an update on this in, in a couple of weeks. I actually could have an, another entire show based on some of the things we were just talking about, because where we ended Kia, on your point around, you know, you have to think about the business unit and not being over 10 billion put a pin in it for next time. Let's talk about how F the business models are, because if the interchange is all that matters to you as the fintech startup, probably not the right one, which also back to Alex's self-fulfilling prophecy, probably isn't the one you want to be partnering with. But thank you both. Thank you for having us, Jason. I really appreciate it. And for the gift of the hot sauce, and I can recommend Crybaby Craig's. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Elizabeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast. And in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.